Right, this week's Flow knows Craig and I sit down and talk about Conor McGregor's leg fracture out of the UFC over the weekend and also talk about hamstring injuries, particularly with state of origin. Uh, Tommy Trebojevic comes up in there and a few considerations for what you can do during lockdown. Have a listen um, on our YouTube channel and also on our podcast um, link will be around this video or on our bio. So hope you like it. All right, Flow Nose, we're nice. back. We're back. Um, Craig's back. Back, back from your wedding, yeah. married man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How's, I made it. How's um, married life? Yeah, it's going well. Smooth sailing so far. <laughs> yeah. Been, uh, been away for, I think, three of the weeks, so only first week back in reality, but going well. So Can't good. complain. <laughs> good. <Yeah. laughs> um, all right, so Flow Nose, we're going to talk about uh, a couple of things today. Connor's uh, leg fracture uh, over the weekend. Uh, everyone sort of would have seen that or at least kind of viewed it. Everyone's got an opinion on it. We'll kind of just talk through some of uh, the considerations from our end, yep. um, looking at uh, what's happened and then the actual kind of process, bony healing time and kind of the stress-strain stuff as well. And then we're going to go through some hamstring stuff, um, particularly State of Origin tonight. Yep. Tell me Turbo is a big... Um, a big, uh, he's been featured a fair bit in the news and things with his yeah. hamstring. So we'll talk, you'll talk a fair bit about kind of some of the research and what people can do, especially because we're um, in lockdown. So, yeah, definitely. Well, it's one of those ones, I suppose, everyone who was watching the flight on the weekend, and probably for those who weren't as well, you might have seen the highlights. And uh, I suppose Conor McGregor's uh, injury was one of those ones that once you see it, you can't really unsee it. Mm. Um, so for anyone who's got a bit of a, uh, or a bit faint at heart when they see a nasty injury, it's yep. probably not the most pleasant thing to see. But uh, we've spoken about it a fair bit today in regards to like what we thought played a bit of a role. Yeah, we're more of the opinion that, that might have been the straw that broke the camel's back. Well, it looked like it didn't. I think um, the the two kind of the mechanism that kind of people are like were thrown out was and some of my mates were saying as well it's like he rolled his ankle and that's what caused the the tib to or the fracture to happen but you kind of look at it and go well you wouldn't expect a young healthy male to roll their ankle and fracture through their tib the way that he did so we kind of talked about the the cumulative load and the kind of considerations of what kind of could have played its role, played its part in it getting to the point where the tip has been compromised that the tibia uh, has been compromised that much that it actually then loses its integrity, its structural integrity, to the point where it's a clean fracture. As Connor Connor said, I think yesterday that he's he clean clean break through the tip. So yeah, and that's um, it's kind of how it looks like depending where you read and like. Yeah, something like this we're never going to get the full information but with the information we can get you can kind of piece together the bits of the puzzle so yeah um by the sounds of it there was an interview where um coach Kavanaugh said that he'd had an MRI in the lead up to the fight because he was having some troubles with that distal kind of tib and fib um probably clearing for any like little fractures but uh would have been interesting to see whether there was a little bit of bone stress going on yeah to begin with pre-fight um and then potentially during the fight, there was a couple of incidents where, um, well, the first one was early on in the fight where um, Dustin claimed he checked the kick, kind of doesn't reckon he did, but he yeah, seemed yeah. point to it. Yeah. Um, sounds like that was a little bit of a preceding event. Yeah. And then obviously that teep kick and 
the twist and then kind of it all yeah, went later you, on. And I, I guess we'll put it up here. We'll, we'll break it down um, just in kind of that sequence of events. And I, I went back and watched the fight and I, I counted sort of seven heavy leg kicks that were, he was throwing with that left side. Might be give or take one or two. But there's that point just after he throws that teep kick. So you know what the teep kick is. I had to look it up. <laughs> uh, Muay Thai. So it's that stab kick that he throws. Um, and it kind of connects Dustin's elbow. And then the next punch that he throws, you see he, he goes to throw off his, his left foot, but you kind of see the, the bobble in his actual kind of distal third of his tibia, which is the main bone in the, the shin. And then... As he comes back, that's when you see the kind of the basically the ninety degree angle of the the actual foot and the and the the shank. Um, so kind of looking at it, you kind of think, all right, repetitive, repetitive, repetitive loads, heavy loads on the actual cortical structure of the bone that eventually gets to the threshold of the the stress tolerance or the strain tolerance of the bone that then turns into uh, a frank kind of fracture and, and loss of structural integrity of that bony kind of tissue that that's when we see it kind of happen in that moment so i and that's kind of what we were chatting about in terms of like stress injuries and kind of build up to what is the environment that kind of can lead to that and when you think of kind of fighters particularly any kind of combat sports that are weight cutting and weight cutting and the physiology behind weight cutting isn't by any means our area but when you think of or our specialty or what we know most when you think about what they're doing in a very short window off the back of a heavy training camp there's a lot of repeated stress there's a lot of heavy stress on the body that then when thrown into like a weight cutting scenario you've got a a severe restricted energy kind of uh, intake because they're trying to cut I don't know how much kind of cuts do you know no, no. So they've got a most of them are cutting of I, I wouldn't know, but when they're in that kind of severe caloric restriction um, in that window pre weigh in, you'd think that there's an environment there that suggests that it'd be detrimental to bone mineral density. Yeah, and it's something that with the weight cutting, it basically creates a catabolic state where it's not really usually what we see with the body is like a bit of a balancing act between what we throw at it and then what your body's willing to adapt to or able to adapt to and the resources have to be there for it to make that adaptation. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, during the weight cutting stage, restricting calorie intake, restricting uh, kind of even hydration, yeah. um, generally in the lead up to that overtraining to make sure they get to that really high kind of state of athleticism as well. And it almost creates this perfect storm for an event like this to happen. Yeah. Um, if you were going into combat, usually you'd want to have your body in pretty much like the robust, most robust position it could possibly be in. Mm. But because of everyone uh, having to weight cut to compete with people at an equal size, mm you're actually putting your body at a bit of a deficit and then going into combat afterwards. So, like, it is something that you do hear people talk about quite a bit and mm. has been a bit of a controversial topic for a while. And then it is something that no doubt would play a role in a lot of the injuries that you see, yeah. people dropping out of cards, people getting staph infections in the lead-up to it, 100%. Um, just due to the environment that it creates. Yeah, well, there was a study that I looked at for 
it looked at elite kind of level judo uh, athletes, I think collegiate potentially, and they kind of looked at their their bone mineral density as one of the markers that they kind of tracked uh, pre-competition or say like in just training season and then the the pre-competition which is like the, the week building into the actual uh, comp and then post-competition as well and what they what it found was in that kind of pre-competition stage where they're weight cutting and, and significantly trying to get down in weight that the analysis of their bone mineral density was tipped in favour of the bony resorption or the kind of uh, osteoclast sort of uh, environment where the tissues are getting kind of the bony tissues are kind of being reabsorbed and not laying down new tissue in enough time to kind of um, build up their kind of density. So usually you've got that that playoff between laying down new bone after you've kind of stressed it, you've got all the kind of right environmental kind of cell the right cellular environment to lay down new bone, and then when you're stressing and you're having activity, whether it's running or combat sports, kicking, jumping, whatever it is, that kind of activity promotes the bony kind of degradation. But you've got then this balance of right, laying down new bone. You've got osteoclast activity taking it away, osteoblast activity kind of putting it back and, and making it more dense and more robust to the stress that you put it under. Mm-hmm. So I guess interesting, and obviously there's a lot more to what can happen with someone, or a lot more factors that kind of go into like bony health. So kind of thinking hormonally and maybe we touched on kind of the weight cutting and um, things like that, but also we don't know what kind of pharmacological agents are kind of what his kind of management like is pre-competition we know things like glucocorticoids and things like that can um, be more detrimental to bone mineral density um, and then also kind of nutritionally you'd think he's the highest paid athlete in the world you'd imagine that he's got those things sort of covered nutritionally and he's getting good advice but that perfect environment for the tip to kind of clean Clean Braggart, did, did was there a report? Is there have you seen any kind of X-ray or anything from him? Mm, I saw one floating around, but it's hard to yeah, clarify it if it actually yeah. was, and I don't think it was. Was it Tib Fib? That yeah. one, yeah, yeah. Um, but it is one of those ones, I suppose. Like from a, if you've kind of seen enough of these kind of style injuries, you tend to get a fair indication of what you'd expect with yeah, it, yeah. and then. I suppose what he's potentially looking at to try to try to fix that or try to correct it is he put out a little statement the following day saying he'd been under the knife, yeah. surgery went well, he'll be yeah. on crutches for six weeks. Typically what you'll see is they'll usually use kind of like rod screws plates kind of as the surgeon kind of sees fit to yeah. reinforce it and then allow basically the bone to heal around that. Um, usually what you're looking at from a rehab point of view is that first six weeks is just like protect it, let it heal, um, let it get the structure back with that new hardware in there. Then what you're looking at for the next six weeks generally is starting to get it moving, all pretty gentle, it's still kind of healing, letting it adapt to doing some weight bearing and things like that. And then usually probably from that three-month mark starting to build up to a bit of normality over the the coming three months, Mm. And then in regards to when you're looking at actually making a return to the octagon, I think the uh, UFC put a six-month medical suspension on him. Yeah. Where you mentioned before that he's the 
highest paid athlete going around. Um, from his point of view, there's probably no rush in the sense that if he gives himself an extra three months or so, so if you're looking at getting back to normality by the end of that six and getting back into your full mm-hmm. training and then actually really trying to peak after that yeah. is probably your best option for it. Definitely. Uh, and I think thinking just through my head then is like concurrent injuries as well. You like you think of such a traumatic kind of fracture like that and you kind of see him like standing on his basically on that fracture line where his, his tib is. You kind of think then what about all those other tissues in and around yeah. that actual kind of shank and the ankle? You like think of those ligaments, you think of the interosseous membrane, you think of all those complications that come with like those injuries themselves, that it's not just that kind of fracture or if it put a put your kind of so have your surgery surgery then it's sweet it's kind of then going through that process of getting everything kind of healed up and moving and moving again toward kind of the level that they need to be moving at yeah and then there's also sort of this the physical but then there'll also be the psychological like where treading on your leg and pretty much having it go to jelly underneath you Mm. takes a little bit of time to come back from in regards to wanting to throw that hard kick yeah um pretty much kind of push it the extra mile and kind of really getting that confidence back so it's something that'll be interesting to see how he plays it on his return Mm. because you'd want to make sure you're well and truly get that kind of confidence back and don't be a little bit gun shy and uh able to kind of perform from a psychological perspective but also from that physical perspective yep um, when he does make the return. Yeah, and kind of think, so Anderson Silva came back and kind of got back up to his, his tib-fib kind of fracture and Weidman's in the process at the moment. They're a little, I would, I would sort of deduce same sort of, even though there's happened with like contact, you kind of think along those same lines. Yeah. I think like it's, like how often they're kicking and using those um how often they're kind of say kicking and training kicking hitting the heavy bag and doing those things you think that kind of structurally that you look at kind of some of the tie fighters and things chopping down coconut trees and things like that or palm trees and things and you're like like cortically and structurally within that bone you would imagine that they'd be some of the the strongest bone mineral density going mm. around so why is then again and again going back to kind of what we were talking about before with the the cut you think there must there, i wonder what their kind of the rate is of kind of these kinds of fractures within these like mixed martial arts because we, we see the ufc ones right yeah. but we we don't probably hear about or see all the the amateur levels yeah so it'd be interesting to talk to someone re um the weight cutting yeah stuff that knows more like I know there's a few guys around in the combat kind of world that are really heavily into that kind of particularly so it'd be interesting kind of to see more research I guess from a combat sports point of view for the the detrimental effects of kind of that that period of super kind of weight cutting and the effects on the body in that shorter term because they're they're weighing in and is it a day, is it 24 or 12 hours before 12 24 hours, 24 hours yep. and they've got that 24 hours to kind of rehydrate eat and get ready but is that enough time for the body to kind of then get back into its kind of homeostatic level or a, a place that's good for kind of performance and health overall yeah 
And it is one of those ones that I suppose where we browsed around a little bit in preparation for this and all the research in regards to combat sports athletes, there wasn't as much as probably we would have expected considering all the usually research follows the money, considering all the money that goes through yeah. boxing, um, mixed martial arts um, and all the other kind of combat sports along those lines. But um, the International Olympic Committee has actually done a little bit of research. Yeah. Um, they're talking about endurance athletes combat athletes um typically um sports that involve a bit of a power to weight ratio mm. um and they have kind of like done quite a bit of research that you can i suppose extrapolate to the combat sports yeah. but in regards to those like probably high risk areas where i suppose you've got the endurance sports like your long distance running and things yeah. like that the big difference is they're not also being in that state and then having the trauma mm. and sometimes when they're in that state if they get into what they call relative energy deficiency um, or their basically energy availability is, is low, yeah. so they're not getting that balance that we mentioned before. They still lead to fractures, stress fractures, things yeah. like that. So let alone you're then trying to kick another human's leg and then it just goes yeah. on you. So it would be an interesting area for them to kind of delve into a little bit more because by the looks of it, we're seeing these injuries happen more yeah. and more. Well, I think maybe with... Like the PO, the Performance Institute, the UFC, you're probably going to see some, like they've got all the technology there. I think if they were kind of to partner, you might see, like with the uh, university or something, like that, you might see some good studies coming mm. out because I guess these athletes are doing it, like some of them are turning around pretty quick, but um, they're doing it regularly. So you'd, it'd be interesting to see that kind of come out because all it means is better safety for the athletes that are participating if they know kind of their effects the effects of what's happening so I think um, yeah an interesting part to look uh, an interesting area of research to move forward yeah definitely Um, anything to kind of wrap up on that so we wish Connor the best I guess and yeah hopefully um, hopefully. well it sounds like Poirier McGregor number four it sounds (laughs) like doesn't it (laughs) Have you, um, uh, why uh, there's a few of my mates that are just mad Connor fans and they're yeah. kind of like, it's all working out. Like, Connor, Poria will go fight Oliveira and, and, and kind of oh, come back and come back and <laughs> like get the title. Then they'll, they'll fight McGregor and, and Poria number four for the title. And then he'll be the top, he'll hold the lightweight title. And you're like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm a uh, Khabib man, so maybe that might bring him out of retirement. Yeah. Well, you one never more, know. One more smash. One more. One more. <laughs> Um, all right, so moving on, let's go to uh, hamstring injuries. We'll talk Tommy Turbo, um, lockdown, uh, and what people can do moving, I guess, lockdowns happened to get, or community sports off, so a lot yep. of people kind of then not playing anymore. Um, and then kind of looking forward, this little period, if they do go back, it's it's questionable now whether or not they will go back to kind of community sport. Um now but kind of thinking I guess what we can look at is turbo as a case study what can people do from a prevention standpoint um, in this little lockdown period what should they be doing in in order to kind of minimise their risk if we do go back post-COVID lockdowns um, if we can get them uh, as injury free as possible possible. I suppose it's like deja vu a little bit 
Um, yeah. One thing that we saw in the clinic last time around was obviously during the lockdown, people's lives are restricted. They're not going to the gym because things are closed. They're not playing the sport that they normally would. Yeah. And a lot more people end up spending a little bit of extra time on the couch, which is uh, perfectly fine. <laughs> um, but then what we saw, unfortunately, afterwards was just this like zero to 100, where it was like yeah. suddenly sports back on, people have trained kind of like once or twice and then we just saw this influx of soft tissue injuries yeah. like lots of calves hamstrings were probably the big ones that we saw mm-hmm. here with the sports that we see around the area yeah um groin kind of strains um so it's just one of those things where we mentioned going from zero to 100 one of the biggest things that you can do is try to minimize that drop off yeah. so if you play a sport um where you're doing running make sure you still run if you get in if you're in a sport where you're doing some sprinting make sure you're doing at least some sprinting over the course of the week yeah um where you do you might normally go to the gym um targeting kind of like certain muscle groups in the lower limbs if you get the opportunity to try to do some body weight work at home so it's like you're trying to minimize like any drop off yeah as best as possible um they did one or two kind of like research studies um one was in the bundesliga um the german premier Mm. soccer league they actually found even in the pros that they had a 3.12 percent increase in the number of soft tissue injuries they saw post-covid and they're trying to do everything possible so when we then um i suppose apply that to just your everyday weekend sport um it doesn't look good but it's like if you can do what you can do you're really minimizing your likelihood Mm. of, of things going wrong yeah, definitely. There was a big, uh, I guess, a huge spike last last year, and then I guess if they if we do see that come back in in sports, if they do say we're back on, I think touch wood, people are a little kind of better for the last year. Uh, but a few things that definitely they can be doing. Maybe we'll go through them um, in a minute to kind of help help them kind of through this lockdown period for their their uh, training. So. Let's use Tommy Trebojevic, Tommy Turbo as a as a um, as a little case. So historically, some chronic kind of hamstring issues. So notably, kind of this year had had again some ongoing issues with with hammy kind of complaints and hammy injuries. I think he's running the Corso uh, one night and and then <laughs> injured his hamstring in the shower the next day or something <laughs> apparently. Um, but now seems to be one back to like a peak level of performance. Um, so if you look at his last sort of couple of weeks through uh, just the the club games, he's just everywhere and he's performing well. He's been back to kind of his best. You looked at uh, Origin, uh, State of Origin 2 again, 1 and 2, I think, just an animal and kind of, looking really free and looking really good and you kind of listen to him and his change and kind of what he's done for managing his hamstring is just it's kind of the the stuff that we're going to talk about from the research but it's getting back to kind of some high speed running in his training uh, which is kind of typically some people may avoid because that's how you injure the hamstring but we know from from a research point of view and from kind of um, an EMG sort of activity level you don't get that kind of um, activity from the hamstrings other than when you actually max or high speed run. So incorporating that into their training environment, I think. And his environment, as you said, has been uh, a big game changer and it's kind of like a... I think there was an article recently that's shared on one of the 
kind of maybe the sports science thing that I'm in and they're like high speed Tommy's sort of high speed running uh, and he's working with a sports scientist or something like that and it's kind of just like well everyone was like oh this is kind of how you should be managing it but it's there's been that kind of I guess that ongoing nature for him where potentially I don't know who manages uh, who's at who he's under or anything like that but he's been having some issues but if you can you can talk to kind of some of the strong and long stuff and some of the hammy the the best management one for preventing hamstring injuries and then also rehabbing them yeah kind of a bit of an approach yeah definitely and it's one of those ones um I suppose it's different at the top leagues or top levels where they wear GPS yeah. trackers and things like that. So they also implement some like similar approaches in the English Premier League and have mm-hmm. done for quite some time. But where all the players will be wearing GPS trackers, they're able to um, pretty much track what percentage of the athlete's top speed they get up to yeah. during any given match. So they'll call high-speed running. Depending where you read, either 90 or 95% of what your maximum speed is. Yeah. And then if you haven't got that in the game, even though you've played a game, you've worked pretty hard, you're probably kind of buggered, at some stage during the week, you'll look at actually making sure you do get up to that so that you don't inadvertently go weeks on end without reaching your peak. And yeah. then suddenly one game, you get an intercept and you've got to put the foot down and then you've yeah. done your hamstring. Um, so regular athletes can um, just do it as a RPE. Um, so it's like what you perceive to be a rate of exertion. Mm. Um, so it's like, okay, I'm running at 100%. So you can just take that similar approach to yeah. your own training during the during the lockdown period without the need for any kind of fancy mm. gadgets. Um, so that's one thing. Um, and the exposures to it aren't even all that all that large in reality. Yeah. Um, sometimes it'll just be just a number of sprints, might be up to 30 to 40 meters. Just make sure you get that kind of like top speed. Um, running them through eight to ten times for example everyone's prescription will be different yeah but it doesn't actually have to be a huge amount of it it's just giving you that little bit of a dosage to make sure your body's well and truly capable of doing it for when the time arises yeah i think i read there is also that and topical in the sense that the the article that i read is like high speed sprinting as a vaccine for Mm. hamstring muscle injury and they kind of within that article it's like if you, within your practice or within the week, um, had exposure to greater than 95% of your max velocity or max speed, um, that there was a protective effect comparative to people that didn't reach or, or got up to kind of 85% or below their max speed. Um, so using sprinting as a prevention tool and kind of understanding that that kind of it's not you shouldn't, if you've had a previous hamstring injury, you've got to kind of be thinking early in your rehab, we need to start progressing back toward um, high, high speed running yeah. and, and sprinting. And I kind of, just from like a like an everyday clinic point of view, you kind of see so many people come through with hammy injuries that may or may not follow your advice about getting back to kind of their, their high speed 95 plus um sprinting and typically if they haven't and haven't spent some time exposed to that within their rehab period they're these they're the ones that tend to recur and mm. tend to kind of be back in and and that just then prolongs the issue so it's kind of uh i think a tool that early if you have injured your hamstring you've got to think about getting 
you've got to get back to that max speed and not just wait until you're back in the game mm-hmm. and then have a have a one-on-one if you're playing soccer or something or you're chasing down someone or you're taking intercept then all of a sudden it's kind of not where it needs to be so um take us through then i know we put up i think we put up a little blog that you had um talking about strength and length so talking about um eccentric kind of knee flexor strength and then also the fascicle length as a bit of a yeah what's well, god basically with that strong and long is something that we kind of tend to aim for with the hamstring so um there's usually a bit of an interrelationship between the two so you tend to get a lot of people in the clinic and they'll be like oh my hamstrings are always tight um, but what we also tend to find is they can stretch them all day but their hamstrings are often a bit weak too. Um, So they'll give the sensation of tightness because it's almost like they're redlining. What they're throwing at it, they're doing everything they can do and they're just chronically tight as a result. So um, in these people in particular, but um, for people who've had a previous history, we'll tend to do quite a bit of hamstring strengthening. And then what you see is the flexibility actually increases um, if you select the right exercises without actually Mm. having to do hours of just laying on your back just holding your leg up in the air um so there's a couple of things that we'll tend to focus on usually we'll look at some knee dominant and some hip dominant Mm. exercises so kind of a couple of examples of each like knee dominant um because the hamstring crosses basically our hip and our knee joint we want to work on some exercises that are really kind of like focused on keeping the hip still but moving the knee so things like your hamstring curls Um, are probably like your most common example of that. And then something that's more of a hip dominant exercise, like a single leg Romanian deadlift where your knee's staying relatively stable Mm -hmm. um, and your hip is, or I suppose your hamstring is kind of driving that hip motion. Um, Usually if we can get a combination of these things going, um, that creates like a solid foundation. Um, It's shown to, I suppose, from a fascicle kind of perspective, strengthen things. Um, basically increase the robustness of mm. the area as a total. Yep. And then if we can add that some of that sprint work in, that tends to be often the icing on the cake with things too. Yeah, I just pulled up the little blog. Um, interesting, the the title of the little kind of infographic that I like, it says Escape the Quadrant of Doom. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> what is the Quadrant of Doom? It's exactly kind of what you're talking about um, where we're talking about trying to get strong and long. So trying to get the fascicle length um, or trying to improve knee eccentric, knee flexor eccentric strength, so your hamstring kind of lengthening strength, um, and then also trying to stay out of that kind of trying to stay out of the the quadrant where you're weak and short yeah. to a degree. So um, I think what the take home and the quadrant of doom is being weak and short, you're more likely to kind of have uh, a hamstring injury based yep. off some of this research which makes sense when you just think biomechanically of how the hamstrings are kind of working when you're sprinting. They're kind of, if you imagine you're kind of up in that kind of position where you're sprinting, usually what's happening, especially with your your sprinting hamstring injuries, you're kind of slowing down that shin from kind of kicking off into space sort of thing. So the hamstrings are really working as they lengthen to stop that shin from kind of moving too far. So they're, they're lengthening out and they're having to kind of contract and that's often where we see the, the issues with, with people. So if they're strong with that control or that eccentric portion and they've got decent fascicle length, they've got good flexibility, um, they're less likely based off kind of some of the research that looked at 
knee flexor eccentric strength and then also the fascicle weight. So the quadrant of doom. Yeah, sounds, uh, sounds a bit scary. But uh, yeah, it's one of those ones like the... Don't from, be scared of it. <laughs> um, so yeah, you, your most common hamstring injury is your, your sprinting. So you'll often see it at the Olympics. 100 meter sprint suddenly someone looks like them and sniper just grab the outside of their uh the back of their thigh um they're the uh most common ones that we see they often feel a bit more horrific to begin Mm. with um but they actually do bounce back a little bit quicker um and then the other ones that we see are more kind of like your gymnast your dancer um or your soccer player potentially over striding to get to the ball um, they're more your, your stretch type injuries. Yep. Typically, they'll be higher up. Um, usually, they don't feel as bad to begin with, but they'll actually be a lot of often like a slower, kind of like grumblier progression, particularly yeah. in some of those like dancers and gymnasts who need to get back to doing the splits and things like that. Yeah, definitely. But like regardless of your sport, if you're able to take that approach strong, long, mm. um, usually it goes pretty well. Tell me then, as a takeaway, <clears throat> what are your three best hamstring exercises that you would recommend I do yeah. in this lockdown period. In this lockdown period. We'll take the lockdown approach, so we'll go minimal equipment. Yeah, so like something that someone's watching their play sport, they know yeah. they can kind of like, they need to be doing something. Yeah. Can't go to the gym. Yeah. Can get out in the park, can do some stuff at home. What would, yeah. what would you What would you give? Yeah, so... Um, where we spoke before about a knee dominant, a hip dominant, mm-hmm. um, and then maybe something else thrown in. Uh, probably my knee dominant one. I like bridges with the feet up. Yeah. Depending on the level that you're at, either go both legs up. If that, if you're pretty good at that, go one leg up. Um, if you're pretty good at that, if you've got a Swiss ball or just like a home office wheelie chair, pop mm-hmm. one of your legs up on that or both. Go up. Roll your legs out, bring them back in, back down. Yep. If you're really good, go single leg up, out, back in. Yeah, um, that's kind of a really nice one. Works things really hard, and it's pretty progressive, so you can kind yep. of find where you're at on the ladder. Um, I really like single leg deadlifts. Yeah. Um, so either body weight and then just increasing your tempo, so kind of like a slow down, but then kind of like a real yep. kind of quick kind of pop up. And then you can kind of increase that if you do have a little weight. If you don't have any weights at home, you can even get some of those like green reusable Woolies bags, pop some maybe old cartons of milk in there, kind of make your own weight at home. Yeah, I like um, So I think there's your knee dominant, there's your hip dominant. And then if you're actually able to get out and do some high-speed running, yep. you've kind of like ticked all your boxes in a pretty kind of like short space of time. Nice. I like it. So, well, I guess a big takeaway now for anyone that's kind of, they're off sport, they can't train, they can't be together with the team. It's kind of, if you're going to keep keep yourself kind of from a hamstring point of view, get out and sprint as a, the first one or, or maintain some high speed running once or twice a week. Expose yourself to it. Some hamstring exercises. Maybe we'll put some, uh, we'll break them down and put some, some videos up yeah, definitely. Um, of some different, different kind of... Uh, very variations or different options that you could kind of people could be doing because there's a lot there's a lot of there's a lot you can choose from um anything else to to add do we uh, go new south Wales tonight origin three yeah you reckon i'll do it <laughs> three games in queensland three yeah. new south Wales wins i think so whitewash i think so all right um 
Flow knows. You know, I don't know where we'll put this up, but maybe we'll put it up on our YouTube and we'll put on Facebook and probably Instagram. We're back. We're back. All right. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, Jason.